Blog Talk Radio. Glamour, Fearless, Diabetes, Cancer, and You, a special podcast. This is my heartbeat song and I'm gonna play it. It's been so long I forgot how to turn it up, 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 up all night long. Up, up all night long. You, where the hell did you come? I'm ready to welcome you to our special Diabetes, Cancer, and You podcast tonight. I'm your host, Mr. Divabedic, and tonight we're talking about the link between diabetes and cancer with musical inspiration from Kelly Clarkson, courtesy of Sony Music. Now, did you know that people with type 1 and type 2 diabetes are, di- are diagnosed with certain types of cancer more often and are more likely to die from cancer than people without diabetes, according to an Australian study? Well, that's probably why I'm urging my listeners more than ever now, including you out there, to get screened, because millions of people today are living with cancer or have had cancer, and statistics state that about one-half of all men and one-third of all women in the U.S. will develop cancer during their lifetimes. Early, Early detection, it seems to be the key to surviving as well as thriving from a diagnosis. Joining me tonight are Dr. April Speed, Dr. Andrea Chisholm, and Amy, a four-time cancer survivor living with type 1 diabetes, along with Jana, a breast cancer survivor living with type 2 diabetes. Plus, how about you? Why don't you join the conversation and call into our studio line at 347-215-8551. Now, before we get started, I want to take a minute and ask you to donate to DivaVedic at divavedic.org. Your tax-deductible contributions are greatly appreciated and will go to help us continue with our outreach. Like coming up on November 8th, I will be in Philadelphia at the African American Museum presenting DivaVedic Victory Over Diabetes in association with Thomas Jefferson University Hospital as well as the American Diabetes Association. You could register for free. I re- this is a free event. You could register at any time at 1-800-JEFF-NOW or find out more details at divabetic.org. Stay tuned because two divalicious doctors will be joining me. But first, I want to hear my favorite anthem off of this new Kelly Clarkson album. Uh, it's called Invincible. I think it's great inspiration for tonight's show, and I hope you enjoy it. But now I am invincible No, I ain't a scared little girl no more Yeah, I am invincible What was I running from? I was Welcome back to Diabetes Late Night Special Edition, Diabetes, Cancer, and You. I'm your host, Mr. Divabetic. Tonight we're discussing diabetes, cancer, and you, and we're going to start by meeting two wonderful doctors. Please welcome Dr. Andrea Speed, who's an oncologist and breast cancer surgeon from Atlanta, Georgia. Hello, Dr. Speed. Hi, how are you? Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us, and welcome back to the show. Dr. Andrea Chisholm is an obstetrician and gynecologist from Salem, Massachusetts. Hello, Dr. Andrea. Hi, Max. Thank you for having me as well. Thank you. 
I'm so glad you both are here tonight because um, it's October's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. There's a lot of medical headlines in the paper, and uh, one of the biggest ones, I think, is the American Cancer Society uh, have, putting out the new breast cancer screening recommendations to actually cut back on screening for a large number of American women who they consider to be at average risk. Basically, they want to start screening later and less frequently. Uh, Dr. April, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. Uh, sure. So my thoughts on the um, American College, the um, ACS guidelines, is that they're just guidelines. And although I have a great deal of respect for the uh, American Cancer Association, the goal is to make sure that you know what your individual risk is. Um, guidelines are not mandates. So if you feel that you're at increased risk or if you have a family history or even increased concern, then you should still get your screening starting at age 40. And a lot of other organizations support that, including the American Society of Breast Surgeons and the Susan uh, Coleman Foundation, of whom I'm on their uh, board for the uh, local Atlanta affiliate. And so we're very strong proponents of continuing screening at age 40 um, in spite of those uh, guidelines. Well, if it ain't broke, then why fix it? Why would they, change, why would they make this change in the recommendation? Um, you, you go ahead, Angie. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, I, I think the thing that's, imp that's important to understand is that when these guidelines are established, they're established uh, sort of what we call population-based medicine. The guidelines are made to look at healthcare dollar expenditures and, you know, risk, ben risk benefits across the spectrum. And it, it's, they sort of inherently then expect for there to be misdiagnoses. And, uh, you know, that, that's a big problem when you, when you look at an individual patient or you're considering what you're going to do for yourself or your family members. So, um, Dr. April, do you think that the anxiety and the burden on the healthcare system caused by overdiagnosis or false positives is is really that big a deal that you would that they would urge people to put that they would I'm not saying urge people but they would come out with this recommendation, which in my mind, reading it is more confusing than giving clarity to it. Yeah. Um, so, in terms of you know really making a big deal out of, it, I think for a lot of women. The main concern is you're still missing a great deal of women in that age group of uh, 45 and under that would not have been diagnosed had there not been screening guidelines in place starting at age 40. And so although I agree that there are you know, studies that suggest that you have to screen quite a deal of people, women and men, in order to save one life, I think that the benefit outweighs the risk of anxiety because for a lot of women that anxiety can be debilitating. Um, they'd rather know, and, and bottom line is early detection means better protection. And so you've got to see what your individual risks are and to speak with your uh, primary care doctors, your OBGYN doctors, your breast surgeons, try to figure out what works best for you and your family, your specific situation. And, and I, Andrea, think, I think I'd like to just—I I, sorry—I yeah. just like to echo what what Dr. April said in terms of it, it really does come to really understanding what your individual risk factors are, and it is just so important to make sure that you have conversations with that with your physicians. But don't you think, Dr. Andrew, because you're on the first line of defense as a gynecologist, a lot you do yep. a lot of screening and get early detection for breast cancer. That mm -hmm. when people see this, they might be more hesitant. And, and wait a little bit longer before they even have the urge to approach that? I mean, how do you think the patients are going to view this? And what do you think your role would be or what should be the role of a healthcare provider in this situation? If they're, you know, if the, if the idea is now like, oh, I could wait 10 more years, you know, I don't have to, it's not such well, a you big know deal. You know what's really interesting too. I mean, we're talking about the mammogram screening, but some of these gu these guidelines are even now recommending that you know uh, self breast examination is useless and examination you know annually by your healthcare provider really is not doing any good at detecting cancers. Um, and and I, I think that 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 in a way is almost more not more concerning, but is quite concerning because it's Absolutely. taking away that time for the conversation with the patient um, and to help assess the assess the uh, the, the 
risk. Um, you know, the patients that I've seen since this study has come out are, are just, everyone's coming in just with their shrugging their shoulders and just so confused about what to do. Um, but, it, but it does sort of open a conversation um, with patients. And I would say that most people are, more, are, are not looking, in the, looking at this in a way to say, um, oh, geez, I'm just not going to get a mammogram now. See, I don't have to do it until later. People are saying, well, well, well what do you mean? I, 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 I want to have my mammogram, you know? Right, and, and Dr. Speed, mm-hmm. age isn't just the issue. It could be a, a higher BMI uh, that could make a woman be more at risk, right, or a denser breast is also an issue of putting you at higher risk. Well, BMI especially. Uh, so BMI, just for our listeners, is just body mass index, and it's calculated using your height and your weight instead of just your weight. And what it tells us is, of those that have a higher BMI, they're at increased risk for breast cancer, primarily after menopause or what we call postmenopausal, um, because the ovaries aren't the primary source of estrogen production anymore. Um, you're making estrogen from fat cells, and the higher your BMI, um, the, the increased number of fat cells that are producing that estrogen in many postmenopausal breast cancers are stimulated by estrogen. So you can only imagine if you're producing more estrogen and there's more estrogen around, then that can not only increase your risk, but also increase your risk for uh, increased growth of that tumor that may already be present. Is it it younger women? Are younger women with higher BMIs at at greater risk too, or is it just um, falling into that category of, of older than 40? Right. So recent data suggests that women that are under the age of, like, from 20 to 40 um, have a reduced risk of breast cancer. I know it can be a little confusing there. Um, and those women that are over 50 are at increased risk uh, for developing breast cancer. So you say, well, do I just gain weight, you know, when I'm younger and try to lose weight or become more lean after 50? And the thoughts are you still need to try to maintain a healthy body weight because it's more difficult, number one, to lose weight after menopause, and I'm sure uh, my OBGYN colleague will concur with that. She probably has lots of patients that come in out of frustration of how more, much more difficult it is to, to lose weight and keep the weight off. And so the thoughts are, although it's a decreased risk uh, before menopause, but to try to stay ahead of the game by maintaining a, a healthy body weight throughout early adulthood so later in life we try to stay true for success and not have to try to fight to lose so much of the weight. And not and to Dr. mention to Andrea, keep away type 2 diabetes. <laughs> and, I said, and not to mention to keep away type 2 diabetes by maintaining a healthy weight as well. All right. Well, now I'm going to rip a page out of the Diva headlines because Gwyneth Paltrow is causing a huge scandal. She just released another newsletter on her Goop um, a newsletter for her Goop website. And she has an article about uh, two type bras cause breast cancer. So wearing oh, a two-type bra, I guess this has been around forever. I don't wear a bra, so I didn't know about it. But apparently there's this whole thing about the two-type bra. Is that true? What's going on with that? Yeah, data hadn't shown that to be true um, in terms of wearing a two-type bra. That Is that too article- tight in the cup or too tight in the band or in the in the strap? I don't understand where it would be I- too tight. Just too tight in general, not the strap, but just the band and the cup itself. The thoughts are is inflammation, that in, increased inflammation could somehow suggest tumor genesis or the development of tumors because the body's in this constant inflammatory state. Um, but, again, there hasn't been a direct cause and effect relationship established using just modern science. Now, conceptually, inflammation can be problematic for the body in general. And you want to set yourself up for success to help fight disease by trying to lower overall inflammation, but the, just the tightness of the bra itself has not been associated with the increased risk of breast cancer. If that were the case, you'd see a higher incidence of breast cancer in, you know, swimmers that wear the, the very tight swimsuits because they're professional swimmers or increased risk in ballerinas because they have the tight leotards. We just hadn't found a consistent scientific correlation between the two. 
and and we we tend to we tend to use the term inflammation a lot. It's a, it's a, it's a very it's a very it's a big buzzword in medicine right now. But there's just so many different types of inflammation too. And just because we, inflammation associated with uh, um, with uh, you know potentially the, the tightness of the of the of the breast or like inflammation that you would get from overusing a muscle is very different from the inflammatory cascades that it can be associated with uh, can, uh, tumor genesis and cancer. I agree. I don't understand this term inflammation. Are we talking bloating? I mean, what? how do you know if you're dealing with inflammation? I was reading about this as well, Dr. Andrea, and I, I am confused by this term that just seems to encompass so many ideas, inflammation. Well, you know, there's, di- there's different ways that we use there's different ways that we use inflammation. You know, we use inflammation to describe something that you might see. Oh, that looks inflamed. We might say that it looks red and irritated. Um, but it, basically, when you boil it down, it 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 go it, it's different it's different pathways in the body and and how uh, your body activates different substances to respond to um, uh, some sort of a some sort of an insult uh, whether an in, it's an injury or whether it's an abnormal growth um, or whether it's in response to uh, some sort of imbalance in the body so it is an all-encompassing term that you really sort of have to be very specific about mm-hmm. okay and I have another fact- headline Oh, did you want to say something, Dr. Speed? Just really quickly, I absolutely agree with her. And if patients are looking for just clinical signs in the breast itself, redness of the breast, lymph nodes underneath the armpit may be swollen, uh, thickening of the skin, but that's more of a red flag for inflammatory breast cancer. So I think inflammation is important to kind of know what that looks like, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the tightness of the bra is causing it, but just to know that inflammation in the breast can be a red flag. So changes, redness, thickening, swollen lymph nodes underneath the arm, make sure you let your doctors know right away. All right, and Dr. Uh, Andrew, we're going to kick off another hot topic with you. The University of uh, College of London's research reports that women's need for fertility treatments may point to a higher risk of ovarian cancer. What are your thoughts on this? And I'm curious to know, does bre- uh, would certain forms of birth control also contribute to it as well or no? Um, so, the, so this is the thing. It's actually this is actually quite an interesting study for us because it classically had been thought that it was the number of treatments um, that you had to force your ovaries to ovulate, the the medications that are used for women who um, undergoing infertility treatment sort of super speed up and cause the ovaries to to function at a, at, a, at a higher level, and it was thought that that rapid turnover, that stimulation, repetitively cycle after cycle, increased a woman's risk of developing ovarian cancer. Um, so this is this is actually sort of good news and bad news. I mean, it's bad news because it's concerning for those women who have infertility just out of the gate, having trouble getting pregnant, and it argues back to there being some um, ovarian dysfunction, some problem inherently with the ovary that 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 problem then carries over to their risk for um, uh, uh, ovarian cancer, um, whereas maybe someone who's undergoing infertility treatments um, uh, and needing medications uh, to help them along because of something with their husband or maybe because their tubes were blocked from PID in the past, that, that probably doesn't have as much of a, an increased risk as, um, as we have thought in the past. And in terms of birth control pills actually the the one thing that you can one modifiable thing that you can one of the modifiable things that you can do in your lifetime that actually helps decrease your risk of ovarian cancer is to be on the oral contraceptive pill we know that a consecutive 10 years of use of the birth control pill actually markedly reduces a woman's a woman's risk of developing ovarian cancer Wow, great. All right, well, when we come back, we're going to be talking about the link between diabetes and cancer. But right now, we're going to listen to another song by Kelly Clarkson from her new album, Piece by Piece, courtesy of Sony Music, entitled Tightrope. And I Welcome back to our special Diabetes, Cancer, and You podcast. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedick, and my guests right now are Dr. Andrea Chisholm and Dr. April Speed. We're talking about the link between diabetes and cancer. Dr. April, I want to start with you this time. Um, you mentioned earlier about the greater risk of developing breast cancer in postmenopausal women. 
apparently they're like 30% higher than the, the national average in developing it. And there's also seems to be um, a greater risk in women with type 2 diabetes developing breast cancer. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, you're absolutely right. So my thoughts on uh, type 2 diabetes and elevated breast cancer risk is still very much so tied to uh, obesity. What we're finding is that women that have a higher level of, um, that have type 2 diabetes obviously have a higher level of insulin, and that insulin has known to be a uh, estrogen mimicker and a stimulant for breast cancer development and for the growth of those tumors. So it, it still goes back to what we were chatting about before in, in regards to the importance of maintaining a healthy uh, body weight because the insulin in itself is a risk factor. And it's higher in women even that don't, that don't have type 2 diabetes. Insulin has been known to be increased in postmenopausal women compared to those that are not postmenopausal. And how do the genes factor into this? Because later on in the show we're going to be talking to a four-time cancer survivor who's living with type 1 diabetes. And I'm curious, like, I know there's a lot going on with the genes, right? And they're looking at not only genes in people with diabetes, but genes in people who develop cancer and the idea that some mm-hmm. people uh, have let, um, are a- aren't able to um, fend off uh, cancers as easily as other people. They don't have the same, their genes don't have the, sa- don't have the same defense systems that others do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's correct. In terms of genetics, you know, if there's one takeaway, it's just because you don't carry a breast cancer gene doesn't mean you're exempt from developing breast cancer. The genetic component is only about 5 to percent, 5 to 10% of new cancer diagnoses. So about 90 um, to 85% of us is sporadic, meaning out of the blue. Um, but it's important to, to talk with your doctor about seeing a genetic counselor where they'll sit down and do your uh, go through your whole pedigree and do a um, somewhat of like a genetic analysis and get genetic testing to see if you carry the breast cancer gene or if you carry genes that are not necessarily breast cancer genes, but there are genes that put you at increased risk for multiple types of cancers, not just breast, but including breast. Um, that's helpful information for many patients, but again, this applies to the minority of the population. What this can do is empower you with that information to make decisions that you otherwise wouldn't have uh, made had you not had that information in terms of do I get surgery and proactively do uh, what we call prophylactic bilateral mastectomy, a mastectomy in the absence of breast cancer, or do I remove my ovaries, or, or do I get increased screening now that I know I have a gene. So it's important to also get genetic counseling with the testing to help tease out what that means for you. And Dr. Andrew, did you have any comment on that? No, no, I absolutely, absolutely agree with uh, with Dr. April. And you know, just again to reiterate that um, you know, obesity and um, physical inactivity are both risk factors for you know type two diabetes and also for um, you know certain estrogen dependent uh, cancers like breast cancer. And then I have to add in the plug for also endometrial cancer or uterine cancer. Well, I heard that ovarian cancer is often uh, difficult, is detected in the advanced stage when it's harder to treat. Is that true, Dr. Mm-hmm. Andrea? Ovarian cancer is one of the is one of the most tragic um, uh, cancers for sure because we just have absolutely absolutely no screening tests for it whatsoever, and um, it 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 tends not only does it it, it tends not to present with significant symptoms until it's uh, fairly advanced. Um, And the other part is that the symptoms that it presents with are extraordinarily nonspecific and unfortunately are often uh, ignored by by doctors when women come in and complain of them. Things like uh, a sense of fullness, a sense of bloating, um, you know, uh, getting getting too uh, full when they're eating. Just very very nonspecific things, some uh, reflux symptoms, things that could be explained by many other things other than ovarian cancer. And have either of you heard about using metformin to treat uh, cancer, the drug, the oral drug they give for type 2 diabetes? Um, yes, and that and that sort of that sort of goes along the lines of what Dr. April was saying in terms of the understanding that um, that the insulin like growth factor that uh, is associated with um, with diabetes and, di- and diabetes is also um, has has a 
tumor growth uh, promoting effects. So to use metformin, which works on that insulin-like growth factor, um, it makes sense that it actually does have some uh, does help. I don't know which. I'm not sure whose line that is. Um, but while we're taking that moment break, I do want to ask Dr. April. Before uh, we go on with the next segment, I want to talk a little bit about the surgery that women have when there's breast cancer. I was on Pinterest the other day looking at some of the photos. I've been going through looking at a lot of cancer survivors. I'm just curious to know, when someone's considering having surgery, do you ever talk about the vanity issue around the breast and, and, and what, how it's going to be performed? Oh, absolutely. I'm a huge proponent of editing. We uh, spent many years fighting to have insurance cover uh, reconstruction and not have it considered an out-of-pocket cosmetic procedure. So I recommend it to women over 80. You know, it, there's no late age limit. As long as they're healthy and we can, they can tolerate the anesthesia, then I am uh, all for it. I think uh, for a lot of women, if you look good, you feel good. For some women, it's a non-issue. But I have that conversation with every single patient. Um, for a lot of women, they're unaware of some of the options, but there are just a plethora of options that are available, you know, from implants to using your own tissue, um, minimizing the appearance of the abdominal fullness by using tissue from the abdomen, using it to rebuild the breast. So there are just so many different options. And a lot of women I find are a little embarrassed to ask about it because they feel like they're being vain. And so I bring it up. And they're usually very relieved that I have that conversation with them and engage them in a discussion. And then I work with the plastic surgeon, and we get the reconstruction done. For many of them at the time of surgery, and for others, they'll have it delayed, meaning maybe in six months to a year when they're ready and when they're done with their treatment. Now, what is the recovery like for someone with diabetes? And I also want to talk about maybe some of the burn issue. They might be the skin burning from radiation or, or um, something like that. I'm just curious with women with diabetes or men with diabetes, what's their recovery rate like with that going forward with these reconstructive <laughs> surgeries? Sure. Um, I actually did a mastectomy on a male about two weeks ago, and he had diabetes. He did very well. The main thing is just to make sure the hemoglobin A1C, which is a special uh, chemical that we measure to see what your insulin um, and your sugar levels have been like over the course of several months, make sure that's at a healthy level before surgery. Um, oftentimes they may take a little bit longer to heal, um, but with modern medicine, surgery is being done and um, with a lot more finesse, with less downtime, smaller incisions. So even with reconstruction, the recovery time usually is not more prolonged than your average risk non-diabetic person. But in terms of healing of the incisions, that may take a little bit longer. Um, so you just be mindful of maintaining a healthy uh, blood sugar and insulin level uh, prior to the surgery and after the surgery. Now, you asked a great question about burning from radiation. That also has changed. So for a lot of men and women, well, women specifically, they're candidates for partial breast radiation, where you just put a small device inside the breast versus radiating the entire breast, and that has a substantially reduced um, to, to no risk of burning because the uh, the radiation is just internal. It's just to the spot where the lump was and not the entire portion of the breast. So that has really um, changed how we uh, manage these patients and how well that they do, and many of them don't have the burning that they used to have, even with whole breasts. And what um, is that called, just in case someone wants to Google it who's listening right now? Sure. It's, well, it's called partial breast radiation. And okay. um, in terms of companies, there's Savvy uh, that does it. Um, that's one company that's S-A-V-I. That's just one um, type. Um, Mamosite is another. Uh, Contour is another. So there are lots of companies out there that are making these devices, but it's called partial breast radiation and new studies shown that it's equal in terms of survival and recurrence is whole breast radiation, but you're done in six days instead of six weeks. Wonderful. Well, that's great advice and great insight. Hey, hang on, everybody, because coming up, we're going to meet a four-time cancer survivor living with type 1 diabetes uh, right after we hear another song called I Had a Dream by Kelly Clarkson, courtesy of Sony Music.
Welcome back to Diabetes, Cancer, and You. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedick, and now it's time to welcome a fabulous real-life diva. Please say hello to Amy. Hi, Amy. Hi. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure to share my experience with you guys. And and really, what an experience you've had. So let's tell everyone a little bit about your journey. Uh, I know it started with diabetes, and then walk us through... Uh, the cancers and and what you've dealt with over the last uh, decade. Okay, um, yeah. So I was originally diagnosed with um, with juvenile diabetes when I was three years old, and um, you know went through all the normal trials and tribulations that that you have when you're growing up with type one diabetes. Um, when I was 27, um, I um, had felt a lump in my breast and um, didn't really do much about it. Um, because of my age, um, and I later was having discharge from my nipple, and so I decided to go into the doctor, and the doctor told me that it was definitely breast cancer. Um, I then went through a lumpectomy where they removed the lump and some surrounding tissue um, to remove the cancer, and then did radiation um, for the six months or whatever. I wish I had that little implant you guys were just talking about, um, and then did um, chemotherapy also with that. Um, then everything looked good. I had a clean bill of health for a couple years, and then in 2006, I um, they found that my cancer had spread, so it had metastasized to my liver. And within 24 hours of being in the emergency room because of stomach pains, um, my liver had shut down Um because of the cancer invasion, and um, they did chemotherapy, and um, yeah, and I got better, and it was amazing because I was pretty much on death's bed. Um, in 2012, um, I was again diagnosed with a different breast cancer. Um, they actually had kind of taken a step down because it had been so. You know, I've been six years, um, so I just went in to get a mammogram. And in the mammogram, they saw, um, like, a precancerous cells on one breast and then cancerous cells on the other. So at that point, we did um, a full mastectomy. I did have the reconstruction surgery along with it, um, which was nice to have that option. Um, I went through chemotherapy for that. And then just this past year... I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer pretty much like February or March of this year. And um, I had a full hysterectomy and then um, started chemotherapy, which I just finished a month ago. Yep, and this past week I I had a scan and I'm totally cancer-free. Again, yay. (laughs) All right. Well, I mean, thank you for joining us and sharing your story. Uh, Dr. Andrea, you've been listening in on this four times, breast cancer, liver, breast cancer, ovarian cancer. Uh, have you ever have you ever heard of some someone's story like Amy's before? And Amy, first of all, I just want to say, you know, you're an amazingly strong woman. Thank you. Um, not often do you hear this. Um, it, you hear it, but not often. Um mm-hmm. I'm I'm amazed that uh, that you're that that um, you're here and you're talking and it's it's really it's really wonderful. Yeah. And to hear how many times she's been able to come back. Now, one of the I know that's just. I mean, I'm almost speechless. It's just you get (laughs) you know amazing, really amazing. Mm -hmm. Well, Amy, I'd like you to share a little bit about some of the secrets that have helped you stay strong throughout. And I know one of them has been support, and sometimes support comes from very different areas in our lives, from our friends and our coworkers to our church and other things. But you found mm-hmm. support through another community that's nationwide. Um, tell us a little bit about mm-hmm. your journey getting clean and sober and how that community has helped you stay strong all the way through this. Yeah, definitely. So when I was originally diagnosed in 2006, I was um, an active alcoholic and addict and um that that was pretty much my go to on how to survive the cancer that that I think that that happens a lot um I think it's not really discussed that often 
Um, I've met a few people, like at my chemo clinic, that have gone through similar situations where they noticed that they had increased their their alcohol use, or you know, you're you're given just gobs of pain medicine and and you know anti anxiety medicine. Um, so yeah, so I definitely um, you know was was in that the first time, um, and then in in 2004, so a year later. Um, my family had an intervention for me, and I, I, you know, I took their suggestions and went and got help, and, you know, I've been um, clean and sober since then. Um, and my my main support is through my recovery community. Um, you know, it has a lot to do with, you know, the spirituality that people tap into when they're recovering from drugs and um, alcohol, I think is very similar to the same kind of spirituality that you have to tap into in order to deal with any other issues in your life, like my diabetes and my cancer. I love it. And so they were there in the second bout. uh, They were there as a community to support Mm -hmm. you, and it was a little bit different than the first time, right? Yeah, definitely. The first time I went through it, I really just went through it alone. I didn't ask for help. I didn't want people to know. Um, I didn't want them to, like, pity me or have to take care of me. Um, You know, I thought I could handle all of it. And um, I found through my second experience with cancer that uh, it's much easier when you have people around you to help. Um, This is definitely not, you know, cancer is definitely not something that you want to go through on your own. And there's, you know, so many resources to get connected with other people, Um, you know, people that have been through similar situations or just similar, you know, um, medical fights um, themselves. And through this entire process, you also fell in love and and got married. So tell us a little bit about the lucky man in your life. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, so when uh, after the 2006 cancer, um, I was taking some time off of work um, to, you know, to deal with the treatments and everything. And that's when I met, um, when I met my husband, Lucas, and... Um, I didn't really ever think that I would um, get married because of the fact that I had, you know, now two chronic illnesses, the type 1 and the cancer. Um, I didn't really think that that was something that was going to be in my plans. Um, But, um, you know, life has great surprises. And, um, you know, when we sat down and talked about getting married, you know, one of the big issues was, you know, I might not live that long. Um, you know, we might not grow old together. You know, chances are that that's probably not going to happen. And um, he, he, you know, he shared that he would rather be with me for the time that I have left than not be with me at all. So, oh. yeah. That's wonderful. <laughs> now, um, yeah, he's and, really and, cute. <laughs> and by being with you, he was through all these processes, so I'm sure there was a lot of nausea. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit, uh, you hinted at maybe some burning from the radiation and some other side effects. How was it managing your type 1 diabetes through all of that, especially even the most recent time? Maybe we should we should focus a little bit about the ovarian cancer and the treatment and how mm-hmm. did you handle that with diabetes? Right. So um, it's a little difficult. Um one of so when you are going through chemotherapy, um, they there's a lot of bad side effects, and one of the mirac- the miracles that I've seen with my own experience is that they've really improved um, you having less of those side effects nowadays. Um, but one of the things that they do is they give you steroids, and what steroids do for a diabetic. Um, for my understanding of what steroids do for a diabetic is that they um, it makes it harder for the insulin to work. And so your blood sugars tend to run higher. Um, you have to give yourself, you know, a lot more insulin. And so it was, um, you know, definitely a, a chore um, to, you know, have to be so attentive to what my sugars were, Um you know, on days surrounding my um, my chemotherapy treatments. And is that yeah, true, Dr. Andrea, really with about. the steroids and how they oh, treat? Oh, yeah, abso- yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, she'd find herself really chasing after, really chasing after sugars, especially where you're a type 1, mm-hmm. um, even more sensitive to that. 
And when ovarian cancer and maybe some of the treatments like a hysterectomy throw you into menopause or post-menopause, or would that happen to a woman, or am I making that up? Oh, no, 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 absolutely, you're not making that up because um, their ovaries are gone. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's what we call surgical menopause, and it's really harsh because it's almost harsher than the – it is harsher in a way than the natural transition because it's not gradual. It's just overnight. And mm-hmm. so how do, and so coupled with diabetes, what can you expect from surgical menopause? Um. Uh, well, <laughs> a lot, of, a lot, a lot, a lot of uh, all of a sudden onset of the symptoms of man- the typical symptoms of menopause. Uh, diabetes not isn't really going to factor in so much in terms of the symptoms, um, but again, that might also the the menopause might uh, challenge your control a little bit uh, with your with your blood sugars. But hot flashes, you know, vasomotor symptoms, um, oftentimes uh, some mood changes, maybe some anxiety, maybe some depression. Um, definitely with time, but not too much time, some vaginal dryness and irritation. Um, uh, those are just a, a few of the, a few of the, the uh, symptoms that can develop. And have yeah. you ever seen – oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Go on, Amy. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, just wanted, I just wanted to add that, um, you know, in times, um, you know, when the menopause started and then also just in, in my, you know, my um, cancer treatments previously, um, you focus more on the immediate issue. So, you know, I'm, I, I would be focused, like this last year, I was more focused on, you know, the the side effects from the chemotherapy, not so focused on my diabetes. So my diabetes would get out of control and then I'd have to focus more on my diabetes and then my you know, the side effects from my other stuff would get, you know, so it was, it, it's always a constant juggle. I mean, it's a, always a constant juggle anyways, but um, but definitely when you're going through a big medical issue, um, it's hard to keep all of the balls in the air at the same time. Well, I wanted to ask you, how do you find balance in your life? Because a lot of people get very overwhelmed with just the diagnosis of living with diabetes and feel like the life they had before is over, and I would think, you know, listening to your story, someone would think uh, it's all about your health every day in and out, which is why I wanted to talk a little bit about your marriage and also about your recovery and the other things that are in Mm -hmm. your life. So what would you say to someone who's listening right now just about the balance? Yeah. I, um, you know, I always do my best to take care of all my medical issues. Um, but I think because um, I have, you know, a handful, and also, you know, with my diabetes, you know, I've been dealing with that since I was three, that's just kind of part of my normal. Um, it's not something, I don't fight it. Um, I just allow it to happen. Um, I, you know, change whatever daily patterns I need to change in order to take care of the new issue or, um, or you know, maybe remove a, a pattern because I don't need to anymore um, and just accept, you know, life the way that it is um, with the downs and the ups. And so um, I think that that's something that's really helped me is just the the idea of accepting things the way that they are, um, not putting a lot of energy into fighting them or, um, you know, being upset about it. Right, like taking things on pretty much piece mm-hmm. by piece, like our diva inspiration, yeah. Kelly Clarkson, which means we're going to play the title song from her latest <laughs> album, and then we're going to meet my final guest of the night, Jana from Washington. Let's hear piece by piece. Welcome back to Diabetes, Cancer, and You. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedick, and it's time to meet my final guest of the night. She's a breast cancer survivor living with type 2 diabetes. Please welcome Jana. Hi, Jana. 
Hi, Max. How are you? I should have said welcome back to the show. Thanks for coming back yes. on the show. When we first Thank talked you. to you, you were I think you were one year into uh, surviving breast cancer, correct? Uh, some somewhere around there. I, I was on your show two years ago, so I'm a four year survivor now. You're a four year survivor, and how yes. long were you living with type two diabetes before you developed breast cancer? Uh, fourteen years. Now, when you heard um, Amy's story, because I know this kind of parallels your own about managing diabetes and some of the discipline required and, and um, mm-hmm. being proactive, you mentioned before briefly how managing your diabetes prepared you in some ways for your bout with breast cancer. Can you explain that a little bit better? It really did. Psychologically, um, I had been through so much when first diagnosed with diabetes, and I knew I had to take charge and own up or accept or not accept dealing with diabetes. And once I came to a conclusion that I had to accept it, and if you had to have diabetes, that was as good a time to have it with all the treatment options available, it really did prepare me uh, for the onset of, of breast cancer. Have you met any other women with a similar situation of breast cancer survivors living with diabetes? No, I haven't. And, I, and I truly haven't. Is that are you, Dr. Andrea, what is your familiarity around breast cancer survivors living with either type 1 or type 2? You know, I'm, I I don't I don't really have um that much experience with that. Um I I can only say that by the numbers, there have to be a whole lot of women that are in that in that case. But I just wonder if maybe the connections aren't being brought together in in a in a in a in a, in a social grouping sort of way, a support group. Yeah, no, it's probably true. But um, Jana, how familiar were they with your diabetes when you were going through cancer treatment? How familiar was it? Yeah, I mean, were they taking into consideration? Was it something you were having to remind them? Because I know Amy just mentioned the steroid issue for her when she was taking them, and let's just um, ask her about that for one second. I know, Amy, when you first went through your first bout with breast cancer, you mentioned earlier about the issue with the steroids. So how familiar were they? I just want to talk a little bit about the health care provider and your diabetes around breast cancer or cancer of any kind at this time and the treatments available. Amy. Yeah, so I when when I went through the first breast cancer, um I don't feel that my diabetes was addressed at all. I actually got you know violently ill that first night and it really had to do more with my blood sugars being completely out of control than um and not being able to get them under control. Um, because of the steroids, um, more than the actual chemotherapy drugs making me sick. Um, I think that now, you know, I've been working with the same team since 2006, and so now it's definitely something that does get addressed. And, um, they, yeah, that's one of the questions that they ask every time. And I think we had to pay attention to remember that type 1 diabetes is, in fact, you know, biologically very different from type 2. Right. So for Amy, Amy, you know, she, she, doesn't, she doesn't make any insulin at all, whereas Jana's uh, type of diabetes is, is more of a resistance. So Amy's going to be much more susceptible to um, the effects of steroids, much more, uh, much more susceptible to when, when she's not able to eat. Uh, that's gonna, she's going to have a much harder time managing her, her sugar uh, than, than someone with type 2 diabetes. And and Jana, did you have any comments on that? Yeah. Um, now, I, I would say the doctors were definitely concerned. Uh, they monitored the A1C. Uh, matter of fact, they did it more often than the normal, what, three-month period for the A1C count. But um, it Whatever the numbers were, they knew that I just had to make it through the next step. Now, I was lucky in that my breast cancer was diagnosed early. I had missed one mammogram in like 17 years. I missed it one year. So when I did have that mammogram, it showed that I was early stages of breast cancer, and it was zero stage. It was just the beginning. 
So I was very fortunate in that respect. Um, I did not have to have chemotherapy, but I did have seven weeks of radiation. And yes, you you do burn, and and it, it, that's quite a sight to um, take in uh, when you're dressing. And uh, but but it goes away, and and they assured me that it would clear up, and uh, it has cleared up. So thank you for sharing that. And Dr. Andrew, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up was I feel like as a culture we, we kind of silo certain health conditions. You know, when people don't think of um, there, anyone being a dual diagnosis or like Amy mm-hmm. having liver, ovarian, breast cancer, and diabetes. And, I, you know, the more reading you do, you see more and more from the research the links of all these health conditions together. And yet I feel from the larger culture we're just so – you know, breast cancer is pink, and this organization is this, and 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 you know, the culture around the actual condition is is somewhat siloed. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I think to a certain extent, you know, uh, our, we we are starting to become a little bit more um, holistic, and I I mean holistic in sort of the W H O L E way of holistic of looking at looking at how all of these different um, medical conditions interact and, and, and inform each individual person's health and that everything does contribute and is largely interconnected. And I, I think it's a very important point to make. Um, you know, and, and certainly I didn't mean to discount uh, the type 2 diabetes having, having you know, informing uh, not only the breast cancer risk but also the breast cancer management. I was just, you know, pointing mm-hmm. out that in, in terms of the, the acute effects, that um, you know, someone with type one diabetes is going to see see that more more uh, acutely and more more significantly. Absolutely, no, that's fine. All right, I want to turn the tables on this because it's diabetic and it's always glamour, fearless, and we think you know we really promote the idea of loving yourself, loving your health. I know breast cancer for a fact has to do a lot with your physical appearance. Uh, we were in all the different stages from what you were just saying, Jana, from the radiation to the chemo as well as the surgery. Uh, many people find different ways to feel beautiful. I want to ask you both, and Dr. Andrea, also what you've seen your how you've seen your patients um, reflect on this and also claim their own beauty on what they've been able to do. Now, Amy, I know for a fact we talked earlier about an organization and something you did this past year. Can you explain a little bit about how you're reclaiming your beauty? Yeah, definitely. I would love to. Um, I was part of an event last year called um, Pink Day Minneapolis. Um, It is, um, the pink stands for personal.inc., and what it was is for women to get um, tattoos by tattoo artists um, on their breasts to, you know, feel beautiful again, um, you know, to to add some beauty to the destruction that takes place when you have a mastectomy. Um, you know, most women, when they have their mastectomies, they you know, will opt to either get reconstruction or not get reconstruction. Um, and um, there was women of, you know, that had chose both of those paths um, at this event. There were six of us. Um, and we, the tattoo artists donated their time and their supplies um, to give the six of us free tattoos. Um, and it was a great experience because, um not only do I feel um, more beautiful or decorated, um, but I also, you know, made some great connections with some women that I would never have met in um, regard, you know, without that. So, and I know there's a. Uh, it's, we should tell everyone again the website. It's p dot i n k inc dot org. Correct? I believe that's the site that you could go to. And I believe see. so you could go through. Now just tell us a little bit about what was that like um because I know a lot of women out there have vanity issues and don't want to be screened because of what could happen to their breasts. So for you, you elected to have reconstruction, correct? Correct. And so what so were you um just tell us a little bit about that before you went on for the um to get the tattoos, were you 
you had you de- you definitely had scars on both breasts, and then you went in and mm-hmm. had the reconstruction. And did you do you have your nipples, or did you have to have them tattooed, or did you choose not to do any of that? Yeah. Nope, I didn't. Um, I didn't do any kind of nipple reconstruction or nipple tattooing. I actually, um, you know, have other um, skin art, um, you know, in the shape of tattoos, and um, I didn't really feel like a nurse would do as good of a job as a tattoo artist in regards to the <laughs> nipple coloring and whatnot. Although I know that there's some really good ones out there. Um, but I, um, you know, I didn't really feel that the nipple needed to be there. Um, you know, for me, it was kind of dressing up the scars because the scars are part of me now, part of my life story, part of my experiences, and um, I didn't want to hide them. Um, I, you know, I just wanted to decorate them. No, I, I love it, I, and I love your strength. Mm-hmm. And Jana, what what were your feelings going through that transitional moment? Well, I, I'm fortunate, as I said, I had a lumpectomy, so I only have a small scar. The, um, how can I say this? I would say 10 days after I uh, was on your show, October, what, the 8th, 2013, I had gastric bypass, and that was recommended by uh, a team of doctors that I had seen for, for years for the diabetes because, it, it was just out of control, insulin pump for three and a half years. And uh, you were you were asking Amy about, you know, the beauty part of it. Right. Um, for me, I did it for medical purposes, not for the beauty, because I, I never lost sight of my beauty, even as a larger mm-hmm. woman. I, I've At the time I had gastric bypass, I weighed 286, and today I weigh 186. In sixty-seven, two years later. Fantastic. So th- that that in itself, you know, is is <laughs> is a beautiful thing to mm-hmm. me. But even if I had not had to do it, because I had other health issues also, sleep apnea, and the list can go on. But um, mm-hmm. if I had breast cancer to recur. I had already I have already decided that I would have a double mastectomy. You have. Yeah. And what yeah, have you found with it, Doctor Andrea? Because vanity is I mean, people brush it off, but I would think it would be a major stumbling block for a lot of women as well as men out there, uh, even wanting to be proactive. And we're hearing from two really wonderful Amazons who are who have really you know, <laughs> faced this head on with such courage and I know some of my listeners aren't on the same level as these two extraordinary women. I'm just curious, like, what your thoughts on are, on it as well. I mean, I, I think it's one of the it's one of those questions that are that that's really that's really hard to answer. I mean, yeah, I think you can sort of have a have a preconceived notion of what you may or may not do in terms of cosmetic um, when you when you don't have to make that decision. Um, and I, I I I personally watched my my sister who on her 40th birthday had her first mammogram and was diagnosed with invasive breast cancer, not even blink an eye to go through and have a bilateral mastectomy and reconstruction. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I I I think that I think what I think what's most but but on the on the flip side, I've had patients who have had mastectomies and have just been proud to you know just show their 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 new their new um, you know um, breastless chest. Um, and have been very proud with that. So I think it's just really important that um, that we that that women do seek out some counseling. And I was so happy to hear Dr. April talk about the fact that she brings that up um, because I, I I think that you w- women need to do what they need to do. What's going to make them feel best, um, but also have the support of that as well. No, I and I love great. I love the pink. I I had just for the very first I had briefly heard about it, and then I for the very first time I before the show started when you were talking about it I I, I looked it up and what a what a fabulous what a fabulous organization. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're closing up, but before we go, I just want to ask Amy and Jana. You are such inspirational women. Um, I know I'm putting you on the spot, but Amy, what's the one thing that you tell yourself to get through all of this, all the way through, that you could pass on to the listeners? 
That's hard to think of one thing. Um, I think to, um, I don't know, to grab on and ride it through. I don't know. Um, I think that's that fine. Can, there's no, there's yeah. no wrong answer here. That's good. And yeah. how about you, Jana? Well, I would give it the acronym SEAT, Project SEAT, S-E-A-T. Uh, support, education, attitude, and the will to stay focused. Mm-hmm. Now that was wonderful. All right. Well, I want to thank and, all of my and I think guests. and I I just want I just oh. want to say that I think that both of you are just amazing. And thank you so much for sharing your stories. It's very very inspirational for for Absolutely. other women. Absolutely. It's all about attitude, and and I agree. And thank you, Dr. Andrea, for being a part of the show. And I want to thank all my guests for being a part of the show. And thank you especially for listening. Please subscribe to our DivaBetic e-newsletter at divabetic.org and visit us on DivaBetic at Facebook. Remember, every diva and every dude has an entourage, and I'm so glad to be a part of yours. Let's get happy and stay healthy together. We're going to close this podcast with one more song from Kelly Clarkson's album, Piece by Piece, called Second Wind, courtesy of Sony Music. Thank you all for being a part of the show, and uh, enjoy your night. Thanks, Max. Thank Thank you. you.